I'm Sanjit Sethi, and this is On Topic, Conversations on Cultural Leadership. Yia Vang is a phenomenal presence in the Twin Cities food scene, and for good reason. Owner and chef of Union Mung Kitchen and forthcoming restaurant Vinay in Northeast Minneapolis, Yia celebrates Hmong culture throughout his work. Our mantra with Union uh, Mung Kitchen or Vinay is um, every dish has a narrative, and when you follow that narrative long enough and close enough, you get to the people behind the food, and once you're there, it's not about food, it's actually about people. The food is a catalyst for cultivating great relationships. I spoke to Yia at the beginning of May about how intrinsically important culture and community is to food production, and how food's really a vehicle for not just expressing a culture, but more importantly, about philosophies and ideas. So you thanks so much for joining me for this podcast. Sanji, thank you so much for having me. Appreciate this. Great. Well, you know, I wanted to um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit um, about your remarkable biography. Um, you were born uh, in the uh, is it the Bon Vinay refugee camp? Uh, yeah, um, Ba Vinay, or you know, just kind of known by us as just Vinay. Yeah, refugee Vinay. camp in eighty uh, four. In '84, and, and and you spent your first five years there. Is that right? Yeah. So we were there till '88, '89. That's when uh, we uh, were able to move uh, here to St. Paul, actually. Okay. And and what are some of the memories that you have of of growing up in the camp? Yeah, man. I you know it's really funny. Um, Sometimes I think about it and I'm like, it felt like a dream because like, you know, like you're so, so long ago, it was like 30 years ago. And I'm like, uh, but I just remember being a kid, you know, running around, you know, my grandma and they lived like the next like hut down. So like I would run back and forth. I was, I was just kind of like a rowdy kid. My mom would always say, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Just, just doing kid stuff growing up. Like we just, that's all for us. That was just life, you know? And your parents, your parents met in the camp, right? They were both. Yeah. Okay. No, uh, it's 70, 78. Yeah, they met there. They were there for 10 years. Wow. So that's 10 years. That's a that's a time where you build a, it's no longer a camp. It's a, it's certainly a community. It's an environment. It's a, a, a collection of relationships. Yeah. Vinay w- uh, was the largest refugee camp in uh, that area. There was a few other ones, but Vinay was the biggest one. Um, from 75 to 92, it hosted over 55,000 people. And out of those 55,000, um, 90% of them were Hmong people. And out of those 90%, majority of them ended up here in the Midwest. So it's a, so in some ways there was a lot of relationships that transferred from Vinay um, over to um, um, over over to the Twin Cities and in, in this region. Definitely, the first um, like big immigration refugee resettlement groups um, that kind of took a lot of Hmong people in were here from the Twin Cities. Actually, in uh, Minneapolis, um, a lot of the Lutheran and Methodist organizations helped uh, resettle a lot of refugees here, and so that's why it's such a huge. That's why the Twin Cities has the largest. Uh, dense, most dense Hmong uh, population in the United States. So there's about sixty-five to seventy thousand in the metro area. You know, as a as a, a recent arrival to the Twin Cities, um, and as someone that grew up with immigrant parents, 
um, you know, the immediate thing I did as I started exploring this area um, was to find these uh, cultural pockets that I felt um, uh, mirrored a little bit of my own background and my own experience. Um, uh, and so I was really, I really felt at home when I was walking through um, the the two different uh, Hmong markets, uh, you know, um, in St. Paul, um, and felt the kind of bustle and the crowd and the the uh, the um, um, piles of of you know dried barks and you know herbal yeah. medicines. Uh, and there's something for me kind of really reminiscent. Do you? I mean, how does that? How does that visceral connection work for you? If you're if you're walking through some of those those stalls in uh, uh, Mungtown or uh, those areas, does it still kind of bring you back to when you were you know, four or five years old and you were, uh, you were living in Thailand in the refugee camps? Yeah, definitely. Like I have bits and pieces of memories of living, uh, being in the refugee camp, you know, because it's so young. Um, I just remember kind of the hustle and bustle of everything. Uh, again, like I said, just being a kid running around doing whatever, you know, what a four or five year old does. Um, you know, it's, I, I love those markets. Like, you know, I'll be very honest, like friends of mine who are, it's the nicest way of saying this, what's the best way of saying this? Uh, my friends who are kind of Midwestern white Americans, you know, who've never been to anything like that, they come along with us. I'm very open with them. I'm like, hey man, like it's going to be a sensory overload when you go in. Cause you know, like when you go into the small market areas, you know, the stalls, the small stalls, and you, there's all these toys that are making noises. There's all these different smells of different, you know, food, different, you know, herbs, different spices. Like it's a sensory overload because what it is, uh, Hmong village anyways, in Hmong village. So there's uh, Hmong town and Hmong village. The one I go to a lot is Hmong village. Hmong village, what it is, is it used to be a storage unit. And so it's, everything's very close in proximity. You're rubbing shoulders with, you know, people, you know, the, the, the walkways are real small. The food stalls are, you know, everywhere. So I tell people it's a sensory overload. And if you're not used to it, it's going to be like, okay, I need to get out of here, you know. But most people that have come, uh, come with us in there or, you know, have asked to say, hey, can you, you know, guide us through, they, they really enjoy it. So if you're, if you like having your space and you don't like being close to people when you're eating, like this is not the spot for you. But if you want to try some new adventures and, you know, it, it, it definitely, I would say it's super fun to be a part of. But I love in there because, like, I, man, it's weird. I, I feel I feel at home in there. So that's where I feel the most at home, you know, being able to walk around and um, not feel like you're the one that looks different. But you're everyone looks like you and every, you know, and so it's just kind of really fun to have that atmosphere in there. Yeah. You know, I, I find that I'm at home when um, when. Uh, an elderly woman elbows me out of the way to grab the bitter melon that I was eyeing, you know, um, uh, you know, or that there's the press of people around you um, as you're going ahead and, and vying for the right bunch of cilantro or something like that. And I think uh, for me, I definitely found that that sense of ease and that sense of, oh, okay, there are pockets of uh, of culture here that I think uh, I understand in a more intimate way. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about that. And I'm also thinking about how your most recent restaurant project that I think is still evolving um, is named after the refugee camp. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. Our, our new brick and mortar restaurant that we, you know, have coming up right now, you know, because of the pandemic and everything, it's on pause. But our uh, it's called Vinai. And it is um, it is an homage to my mom and dad. 
Um, we, you know, for us growing up, when we talk about Vinay, with any Hmong family, with any Hmong friends, we talk about Vinay, everybody gets it. We get it. It's a word that is very ingrained into our culture, into our people. We know what that means, you know. Um, it used it. It was Vinay was home after the war, after everything you know broke, and you know all the Hmong people were escaping, uh, leaving uh, you know the hills of Laos and the hills of you know and 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 Thailand and Vietnam, and they were just looking for refuge. Vinay was that sense of hope, was that sense of refuge, um, and I just we decided to name it Vinay as an homage to my mom and dad, growing up there, the home that they created. The, the table that we ate from, it was a sense of home. It was always this place where I can go and recenter myself at. Um, even in college, I'd come home and I would uh, eat food from my mom and dad's table and it revived my soul. And so that's why we wanted to call it V9. And we, I wanted the place, I want the place to reflect. I, I, I mean, you know what I said to the architect that's helping us, the architect firm that's helping us, I said, every square inch of this place I wanted to echo the legacy of my mom and dad. So from the plants to the top, you know, to the kind of woods we use to whatever you guys want to do. Like I want every piece of it to represent and echo their legacy. And so if one day they pass on and move forward, you know, we still remember them through this restaurant. So. So, so what was the reaction when you told them that you were going to name the restaurant in B9? That's funny. My mom was like, oh, yeah, did you know that you were born there? And that's, you know, a camp that we stayed in. I'm like, yeah, mom, I know. <laughs> so my mom, my mom was like, oh, that's kind of coincidence. You were named it Vinay. And I'm like, yeah, mom, that's why I wanted to name it. You know, my mom and dad, they're really mellow people. They're like, oh, that's nice, you know. And I don't know. There's, I think there's a part of me that believes that they, you know, they're proud of it and they like it. But then, you know, there's also a part where they're just really mellow and chilled. So, well, you know, the, you know, what I like about, and I'm really drawn to you naming it from this, this physical location is, is what you just talked about right now. It's also the embodiment of, um, uh, of survival, but also hope, but it seems like it's also commingled with trauma, right? I mean, both your, um, both your parents were, were widowers, is that right? Um, before yeah. they met. Um, mm -hmm. and so, uh, and I'm assuming uh, there was a lot of that uh, at the camp, uh, people grieving and experiencing trauma um, um, of what had occurred to them, um, you know, um, and, you know, you know, being part of a kind of military and, and social conflict that um, that went well beyond them. I think if I'm not mistaken, right, your father was recruited by the CIA, was, mm -hmm. you know, or, so um, it seems like it's it's poignant, not just um celebratory to go ahead and, and name it Vinay. Yeah, like I, you know, my father has this incredible story, you know, of when he was, you know, when they, when I think it was like 12 or 13, all his brothers, they all opted and joined, you know, when the, um, when the CIA and the U.S. government came through and said, and all the um, special forces guys came through and said they were going to train um, these mountain people to help us, you know, navigate through this area. And we're going to create a paramilitary troops uh, force. And, you know, my father and his, his brothers and his fat cousins and all, basically all, all men of male fighting age, you know, basically 12, 13 and up, they, they joined up. And my dad was one of those. And uh, I mean, he, that's what he did. 
and that's what they did. And, you know, that was their kind of call to call to arms, you know, their sense of duty, the protecting their home, you know, and uh, fighting for a future that they're not, they weren't sure that they were going to be able to see. So, I mean, there's a great thing. There's a thing that I tell people what I make, uh, what American patriotism is. Like when we think of patriotism, we think of the ego, we think of a flying flag, we think of this is America, you know, we protect our home, we protect our land, you know, the very patriotic. But I want to talk about this other sense of patriotism about there are people, um, people that are outside of America that are fighting for America's interests and some of them never being able to step on or see America. So like my grandpa who fought in the war and died, he never saw America. He never saw freedom. He never saw any of that. But he fought hoping that one day maybe his children's children will see it, will have that freedom. And so, so when, 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 we talk, when I talk about food and I talk about cooking, all of that, it, it's a part of that. Um, you know, where I, you know, one of the things we always say with uh, what we do, our mantra with Union uh, Monk Kitchen or Vinai is, um, every dish has a narrative, and you follow that narrative long enough and close enough, you get to the people behind the food, and once you're there, it's not about food. It's actually about people. That food is a catalyst for cultivating great relationships. And, and, and it's truly, I, you know, we get people come in, and, um, and, and they talk to us about, oh, man, this food is awesome. This dish is, you're making it great and stuff. But that's merely just the tip of the iceberg. I want them to come in more and then hear about my parents' story hear about the sacrifices that my father had to make, hear about the crazy stuff that my mom had to go through and all the things that they had to go through to get us here. So this is their story. These dishes belong to them. This this idea of, you know, when people go, oh, this is your food, it's of your people. And I'm like, I kind of laugh at that sometimes where I'm like, yeah, really, kind of, it's theirs. I'm just the curator. I'm just the guy that gets to, you know, brush away all the little, you know, stuff and make it look kind of pretty and fancy for people. But really, this is their story, and I get to tell their story. And that's just what motivates me. I don't, nothing else really matters, you know, as long as I get to tell their story every day. Yeah, has that, has that work gotten harder? Do you think that um, – I'm thinking about an arc of the past maybe three or four years where it feels like – there's a greater degree of xenophobia that's been emerging. There's a, uh, a greater degree of anti-immigrant sentiment that you're seeing being um, being ex- uh, you know extolled by politicians. I'm just wondering, from your perspective as a as a restaurateur, as someone that is trying to engage in that intimate exchange of community building through food. Um, has that has that has that created difficulties or or made it a more of an uphill climb for you? I don't know. I don't know for others, but for me personally, no. Because here's the deal: my father, when he raised us, he made sure we had every opportunity, and if that meant that he, like, he was willing to make himself nothing so we can be something. As a child, you don't get that. But as an adult, when you realize that somebody has given up their life so that you can have life, it changes the way you do things. So, for example, the thing I tell people is my dad never wa- – he wanted all his kids to go to college. He didn't want us to sit with an excuse like, oh, we're, well, we're immigrants and we're refugees and you know my parents couldn't provide enough for us so we couldn't go to school, like going to college. So he wanted all of us to go to college. So he worked his tail off to make sure that every single – 
one of us had the opportunity for college so that we see his thing was that it's just because we're in this country and we are immigrants and we are refugees like that doesn't give us an excuse as this kind of our, this is like our like our our victim ticket you know like um you know it's you know i've seen that illustration many times where it's like okay like you have this person that starts like 10 feet ahead this person starts 10 feet behind and they have to run the same distance like who's gonna win you know obviously the one who gets the you know to be ahead and and some people have asked me well do you feel like you know since you're you know you're a refugee you're an immigrant you're a person of color do you feel like you're behind like one of the things that my father has taught me is it doesn't matter where you're where you're set up in life like you run just as hard, you run just as fast. You don't use that as excuse to slow down. So I don't see it that way. I I I I know that the politicians will do their things, you know, because they'll they're politicians. The bureaucrats will do their things, laws and whatever like stuff will happen. But like that doesn't stop what I do because what what I'm trying to do isn't. I'm not trying to change policies. I'm not trying to change laws. That's not what I'm really trying to. I'm trying to tell their story in hopes that when people hear their story, it, it, it revives something in them, it rejuvenates something in them, it reminds something of inside of them, their own um, people. So one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen is uh, we were at the State Fair and we were making, uh, we were doing this uh, kind of this play on hot dish. So it was, we called it Minnesota Hmong hot dish. So we'd made this hot dish and we were at the State Fair, we demoed it, you know, a bunch of people were there watching and there was this older gentleman who was probably in his 60s, 70s, came up and started talking to me after. And he's like, you know, I, I'm not sure. He said to me, he goes, I'm not sure of all the flavors that are in there. But when I tasted that dish, it, it, I knew that that, you know, like in my mind, that's a hot dish. So here's this older gentleman, white gentleman, who's from, I think he was from Edina or something, Egan or Edina. He's like, I lived there for the last, you know, like my whole life, 70 some years. And he's like, I never would have thought that this was like all when you said all those flavors and all those things, I never thought that it would be a hot dish. But when I ate it, to me, it was a hot dish. And it was so incredible that we could connect. Here I am from literally born all the way around the world. And here's this gentleman here from Egan or Edina, Minnesota. And we're connecting over this hot dish dish, you know. Food has this way of sometimes overcoming cultural skepticism, right? Um Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And so when I talk about my father and his fight and, and, and what he's done in, in the war and how he fought for the Americans and how, how he fought for the interests of America in this war, it's interesting because some, um, some of these, uh, you know, middle aged guys, older gentlemen that when, when they hear that story, they go, that reminds me of my dad and his fight in World War Two. You know, that reminds me of my grandpa. Like my dad fought in Vietnam and I totally get it. And it's, just, it's these guys that I probably would never really connect, but because of them hearing about my father's story and my mother's, you know, strength, when they hear about this, it rejuvenates and, and it does something inside of them. And, and I, and for me, like, that's what matters. You know, when, when they look at someone like my mother and father and have had many people come up to me and said, man, like, like your mom, like, her story is incredible. Like my mom's more popular than I think we are. <laughs> like everyone always asks about my mom. <laughs> like people come in, they talk about their hot, her hot sauce. They always talk about their, I think people love my mom more than they love me. Uh, but her, her story and what she's done to get us here in America, a lot of, you know, people that talk to me and said, wow, that reminds me of my mom or that reminds me of my grandmother. 
you know, who came from, you know, Eastern Europe, uh, from yeah, Eastern uh, Europe, or I, this reminds me of the stories of my grandparents, you know, and there's that connection. I think there's that humanity connection when they hear that. Your generational component is huge. And I think it does transcend uh, so many cultures. Um, you know, uh, from my, um, when I was growing up, um, as a sign of respect to anyone that was a generation before, um, that was older than you, whenever you'd see them for the first time in a long time, um, you would reach down and, and, and touch your, touch their feet and then touch, mm -hmm. use the same hand and touch your heart, mm -hmm. uh, as a sign of respect. And, um, and I think there is an incredible impetus for that type of, uh, um, um, intergenerational appreciation, um, that that's part of your intrinsic community. Um, and I think you definitely see that within, um, oftentimes Asian cultures, um, mm -hmm. or, um, or, uh, you know, Eastern European cultures, um, and elsewhere. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I see it. I don't know, like, but I'll be honest, like this stuff never hit me as hard as it has in the last five years. Cause I think before, like, you know, in my early 20s, I can say that now because I'm 35, in my early 20s, um, I was just like a silly college kid, you know, that was just like, whatever, like, just, yeah, here in America, that's cool. I just want to live life. Facebook's awesome, you know. MySpace is cool, you know. Like, that's, I was just that kid. And again, like, I didn't want to accept who I was, where I came from. And I've told this to many people. It's like when you're young, you run so far from who you are that you run so far that you actually run in a circle. You run back to who you are. And so, that, I mean, that was the same way when it came through the, to the food that I would enjoy cooking. When I was starting, I was like, I don't want to make monk food at all. It was embarrassing. Monk food is it's it's peasant. It's you know, it's not as cool and sexy as French food, as Spanish food, as Italian foods. So that's I, I hit up all those restaurants, learned all that technique. But again, like I said, what revived my soul, what rejuvenated my soul, what brought me to just, you know, to the table was my mom's cooking. And that until till today, that's, you know, when I go visit them, when I see them, like she'll set out food and I'm, I'm down. Like, let's do it. That's great. And you, you went to the University of Wisconsin Lacrosse. Yep, I went to UW Lacrosse. Uh, majored in interpersonal communication and minored in PR and marketing. Never wanted to cook. Uh, I cooked in high school and college, just to, like it was a job. I didn't really care. I was just like, oh, this is a job. Get paid like you know nine, ten bucks an hour, or whatever. I never wanted to do this. I I hated cooking in restaurants because I would growing up in college, it would be you know it's you work when your friends play. You know, and so I just hated it. I told myself when I got done in college, I'm going to find myself a nice job that puts me in a desk that I can just, you know, work nine to five. And that's all I would do. Um, uh, but eventually it just kept calling me and kept going back. Those were the only after college, the only jobs I could find were in the kitchen. And yeah, I guess it wasn't until like eight years ago where eight, nine years ago where my heart was just really driven and said, hey, like, I, I want to chase this. What does it look like? And yeah. So. What's what's interpersonal communication in terms of a field of study? I'm curious. What did you what did you learn there? And in, was there anything that you learned helpful for you where you are now? Definitely. Yeah, you learn how you learn how to talk to people. But I think more importantly, the one thing that I loved about my comm study classes where I looked at it as a I, I kind of came in from the view of a sociologist. So you're kind of start. It's like you're studying people, studying people's interaction how people, you know, how people like something, how people don't like something, why they like something, why they don't like something. 
And so that plays a big role <clears throat> into what we're doing. Um, but another thing too is uh, I, it's all about narratives, right? It's all about storytelling. And so that really helped me in saying, <clears throat> like, for example, excuse me, I could be like, hey, this dish that we're making, this is what I want people to realize when they're eating it. But if they're eating it and they're not getting that, then there's something I'm doing something wrong. So it's, you know, in, in communication, we always say, what's more important, the intention of the message or the interpretation of the message? Well, studies have found out that 82 uh, percent of people feel that the uh, interpretation of the message is more important than the intention of the message. So if I'm trying to explain like Hmong food to people and if they're just saying, oh, yeah, it's kind of like Thai food and Lao food. Right. Uh, and I just go, yeah, I guess then that's all we get to say is that, oh, we're Hmong food is just a copy of another food. Like Hmong people, we've always been, you know, oh, they're kind of like Thais. They're kind of like Lao. They're kind of like Vietnamese. But and that's why some of the first Hmong entrepreneurs here, especially restaurant entrepreneurs here, opened restaurants on University Ave in, uh, in, uh, in Frogtown. A lot of them are Hmong-owned, but they're Thai restaurants, they're Vietnamese restaurants, they're Laotian restaurants, they're Chinese restaurants, because that was what they were able to do to market it. So what we've really coined in, in the last, um, I want to say, four or five years, when we really, where we really took on this whole thing of what, what is Hmong food, we've just coined this phrase that says Hmong food isn't a type of food, it's a philosophy of food, it's a way of thinking about food. Because if you want to know the Hmong people, know their food. Because historically, we've always been a traveling group of people going from different areas. Because we're agricultural, we'll go wherever the land is the best so then we can work the land. In doing that, we rub shoulders with different cultures and different heritage and different ethnicity. And we took a little bit from them. And what we learned from them, we kind of took that and forged it into our own culture. So I always say that our cultural DNA is intricately woven into the foods that we eat. Now... What when I when all of this like this, like six, seven years ago was just all pieces. And in the last few, you know, in the last five, six years, I've you know, we've been able to piece this puzzle together and being able to clearly communicate that to our own people and to people you know, outside of our community, saying that Hmong food isn't a type of food. It's not about a produce. It's not about a product. It's actually about a group of people. Hmong food is actually an all encompassing holistic idea. So once we understand that, then for us, me as a Hmong cook, like everything is, you know, like free. It's freeing. It's like I'm, I'm not limited to certain things because I'm Hmong and my hands have touched it. You know, whatever I've touched, that becomes part of the Hmong food narrative. And so, you know, and so that means we, we're able to collab with everyone. And that's why I love working with different farmers around here, you know, Hmong farmers, white farmers, Hispanic farmers, and whatever they grow, we can say, hey, we'll take what you guys grow and we'll kind of use our flavor, our techniques, but we're going to use that to, to make Hmong food out of it. You know, one thing that struck me was, I, I think I, I read a, a quote of yours uh, that said, my parents didn't have the luxury of thinking creatively. All their energy was focused on survival. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you went on to and talk about um, the kind of love and care that they provided you and, and how it's something that you've tried to embody in your work. It made me think about this, this idea of creative survival, because, uh, because it also sounded like your, you know, your father goes from woodworker to welder to kind of general MacGyver, like fix it person. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and that, that had to have a, that, that seems like it has a creative propensity to it. 
Um, and I'm just wondering if you've given thoughts about about it, it times when when it feels like creativity seems ancillary to survival, but maybe creativity is survival in many ways. Definitely. My, my father uh, doesn't have like a high school degree or whatever. And, you know, he has no degrees. I think like when we first moved to America, he did a couple of classes in night school just to get basic English down. His English isn't the best, you know, but he's able to take an engine, break it down and put it back together. He fixes all our, the cars. He'll be able to turn on the engine and just like kind of listen to the car and be like, oh, it's this, it's that. Like he's not an engineer. He's not a mechanic. But he's just a person. He's just a man who uses his hands. And if he's able to touch something and break it down, he'll like I've seen him like put together like uh, uh, like you know our lawnmower. His kid, our lawnmower broke. Remember, he took it apart, kind of cleaned everything out, and put it back together, and, and it worked. And I asked him like, "Hey, Dad, where'd you learn that?" He's like, "I don't know. We just let's open it up and try to figure it out." And it was, it, it, it's always been his way of doing things, like working with his hands. And I remember that. When he come inside, his hand would have grease on it from working on the car, working in the you know <clears throat> with uh, small engines, working on anything. <clears throat> Excuse me. And my father, <clears throat> that's what he did. And as uh, you know, as a cook, I love working with my hands. Like for me, like reading something doesn't really sit well with me. I'm like, ah, I don't know. But if I can touch it with my hands and I can break it down, like. Uh, the first time my dad gave me a boning knife, I was a kid and said, hey, I'll break down this side of pork. And he showed me really quick how to do it. Like it made sense to me. It made sense. Like butchering animals makes sense to me. Finding the tendon, where to cut, how to make the cut. What are we looking for? You know, how do we break this apart? You know, so as a kid, I was more comfortable holding a boning knife, breaking down pigs than I was throwing a ball, throwing a baseball, catching a baseball, you know. And so... I, you know, growing up, I just never, I just thought that this was just something everybody did or everybody knew. And in this whole idea of creativity, I, I've, um, I've really, what I meant with what I was saying was my mom and dad, they, they didn't have time to sit and say, Hey, what, how can we dream today? How can we, um, how can we create art? It was no, we need to survive. We need to survive. We need to, you know, you know, make this makeshift, you know, you know, sealing work so that we can protect ourselves from the rain, you know, in this, you know, refugee camp, we need to be able to, you know, build this. And, 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 and so my dad has always done that. And I think it was, it hasn't been until I want to say the last like 10, 15 years where they've had this, where everything, you know, we're doing well, everything's going well. And they're, they've been able just to kind of, they almost look bored because they're not always working anymore. Like they're retired now. So they just look bored. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so, so it's one of those things where I get to see how now they get to be creative. My mom, especially with some of her food and some of the recipes she's doing, she gets more creative now with it. You know, she's like, Hey, I tried this or I tried using this, you know, um, my, my dad, um, you know, like the stuff he gets to build, it's not building for work. It's just building for fun. Like, you know, he builds out coffee tables. He's a, he's a carpenter. He's a woodworker. So he knows how to do all that stuff. Uh, my mom, you know, loves her sewing. So she's sewing all these different, she has all these sit sewing project she does not for work but for fun and so there's this leisure aspect now that for the last you know for 60 some years it's always been survival 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 and for the last few years it's there's a sense of leisure and it's really for me it's very satisfying to be able to see them do that it's very satisfying for them to be able to just go for a walk like it's, it blew my mind that my mom was like hey uh you know your dad would love a new pair of sneakers because we can go on walks 
they've never been able i've never really seen them do that just to go on walks like around the neighborhood because it's like yeah we, we don't have to cook for people we don't have to you know we don't have to you know prov- like you know do a nine to five we don't it's not about we don't, we don't have to worry about you know, are we having money coming in are we paying bills like we've taken care of everything for them you know and i think love their you know their grandparents who get to take care of grandkids they play with their grandkids all day right you know and you know i'm it, i'm wondering about um that um you know you're mirroring your father a little bit which is that you didn't go to johnson wales you didn't go to the culinary institute um um, you took this kind of intuitive um, approach uh, to understanding how to break down a protein or how to go ahead and um, feel like you can put together your own mise en place. And, and, um, and it sounds like it mirrors a lot of it, your dad's kind of intuitive engineering and sensibilities too. Do you think, do you think that gives you an, an edge in some ways? Do you think that it gives you a unique perspective because you're not not necessarily informed by by pedagogy or an institutional vantage point for what what cooking or what a chef could be yeah i mean there's a there's a plus and minus to it you know uh you know there's some, some things where like it took me longer to learn something that if i was probably in culinary school it would be explained to me pretty easily you know what i'm saying and i could just pick it up there you know and there, there's some aspects of it too where it's like i love being able to think outside of the box you know we ran a we ran a pop-up restaurant for the last three years like man, talk about every day. Like, you know, like right now, the big, the big term is, you know, like the pivot, you know, everyone's got to pivot. I'm like, man, we've been pivoting like for the last three years, like every pop-up we were doing, we felt like we were pivoting. There was something that was broken. There was something that was wrong. We always had a, you know, like, so, so we were always kind of just trying to figure out what our next step is, what our next step is. So, yeah, I mean, we definitely, that's, that's kind of made me more, I think, feel like more creative. Um, I, you know, as a kid, I always thought that my dad was kind of dorky. So I was like, oh, I don't know, whatever. You know, dad, my dad's weird. But now I realize that I am him. Like that everything that's good about me, everything that's creative about me, everything that has strength inside of me, it's it's all a reflection of him. It's nothing of my own. Like I didn't, I didn't get a work ethic because I'm like, oh, I'm going to be the hardest worker. No, like I was inspired by watching my father work his tail off to make sure that we were provided for. Like when I get like when I get tired and we're working 12, 14 hour shifts and we're, you know, we're and your your arms deep and washing dishes and stuff. Like the thing I think about is like, man, like dad wouldn't give up. Like he wouldn't give up. And I that's what I think about. You know, honestly, I'm not trying to be melodramatic about it, but that's what I think about. I'm like, nope, I pump it through just the way that he would do it. You know, and so I, I think that that work ethic that he had, like it rubbed off on me, but it also, I mean, I would say it inspired me. Um and I think that, you know, again, like I said, I, I, the kids who come that work with us, that went through culinary school, <clears throat> some of them are amazing. Some of them like can't get over themselves. Cause it's like, well, no, that's not what the book I read said what we're supposed to do, you know? And I'd be like, nah, man, like this is real life application. You know, you know, like you, you live in a bubble there sometimes, but this is real life application. Now I got no knock on that. You know, for or some of the kids who just grew up cooking, and then they, they just grew up cooking in the in the restaurant world, and it was you know boom, sixteen year old, we're starting there. Some of them are incredible. Now some of them don't have the greatest technique because they didn't have an instructor that taught them that. You know, there are pros and cons to it. You know, there's no right or wrong way. At the end of the day, you know, like you know, some of the kids that work with us, um, we just really push on like, hey, like it's hard, eth- you know, it's a work ethic, you know, 
And it's not about being some, you know, food network star. It's not about being on top chef or having your YouTube video. Like none of that stuff really matters. It's about putting the work in. That's what I tell all the young cooks and chefs. It's, it's putting the work in knowing that, Hey, like you have, you know, you have to create muscle memory. You have to have a rhythm. You have to, you know, put the work in once you're there, like you get the next step and, you know, and then you grow up and that's kind of how I went and did it. You know, put my head down, worked when I was young, just worked in the kitchen, worked in the kitchen. The chefs I worked for believed in me and said, Hey, like, we're going to give you a little bit more responsibility. And then you kind of just moved up, moved up. And yeah, you figure out your own system. You figure out your own rhythm in it. So I wanted to pivot to the idea around um, cultural leadership uh, and hearing a lot of what you've been talking about. Yeah, I, I think um, about the nature of, of what this concept may mean to you, uh, but also in the context um, of this global pandemic that we're under. And I know that certainly um, you've been affected by it. Um, you probably know plenty of family members and members of your community that have been affected by it. The restaurant industry has been devastated by the pandemic. But it seems to me that the idea of cultural leadership can take on a greater degree of meaning now maybe than, than ever before. And in particular, I was thinking about it in relationship to how, um, I think it was last week that you um, you hosted the Hungry to Connect um, uh, event where you were able to um, start to um, essentially kind of um, uh, open source demo your having a virtual cooking class. Uh, so anyways, I just wanted to get your take on the idea of cultural leadership and maybe in the extension that the cultural, uh, what cultural leadership means uh, in the time of a pandemic. It's a big responsibility, uh, especially when it comes to things like, you know, cultural leadership. Um, I don't know. It's weird because I don't like, I don't know. I think that sometimes, you know, there are times when people will call on you and say, hey, um, will, would you help us with this? Would you lead us in this area? And I, I'm willing to just say, hey, I'll, I'll do my best. Um, I'm never really just, you know, consider myself like, hey, I want to be a leader in our community. I, you know, um, but I think that in times of stuff like this, I've been, we've been approached um, as a whole unit, as Union Monk Kitchen, as VNI, we've been approached as a whole unit to help. And I've personally been approached too. So, um, I don't know. I just take it as it goes. I saw how my father, especially in, in the Hmong culture, um, in the Hmong community, I should say, that they're, they all, they're, they're always, they're, there's always that, those leaders that are in there that people you know, go to for help. And my father has never been the kind of guy who stepped up and said, hey, like, I am a leader in our Hmong community. But what's interesting is there have been many people in our community that have come to him for leadership come to him for guidance um, when, you know, there's troubles or when there's certain uh, areas that are uh, through certain hardship. And so I've always just looked at that as an example for me, knowing that, you know, there are times that, you know, people will come up and say, hey, like, can you help us do this? Can you help us figure this out? Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, I'm, I don't know, it's weird. I don't really consider myself I mean, it sounds, I'm not trying to, uh, what am I trying to say? Yeah, I don't consider myself a leader, like, kind of like, I'm going to step up, tell everyone, let everyone know that I'm a leader. But um, if if they need me, uh, if they need us, um, I'm willing to help, willing to do my part, especially when it comes to um, raising awareness to different groups, especially, you know, groups like Open Arm, um, you know, um, Urban Roots, 
um, uh, you know, the Good Acre, different farming hubs, uh, half of Hmong American Farmers Association, where we've worked with these different farmers, these different farming uh, uh, groups, um, especially uh, hunger uh, task force type groups. Uh, I love working with them. One of the things that I'm struck by when we're talking um, is that in many ways, the um, it feels like much of what you're talking about is a very intimate and elaborate story around mentorship, whether it's mentorship that you've received from your parents, um, 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 whether it's mentorship that you believe is part of your, um, the, almost part of a necessity that you're able to provide a broader community. You've talked about younger chefs and people, you know, wanting to cook at 15 and 16. And, and for me that, that the undertone there too, is to talk about your responsibility, um, as a mentor. Uh, and I guess for me, I see that as being an essential part of the idea around um, uh, um, cultural leadership. Uh, and I guess I wanted to maybe get your take on on how um, how your ideas around mentorship have maybe evolved over time um, since maybe you know from college and to see yourself as a um, as someone that's uh, really providing uh, agency and voice for. Um, for uh, among culinary vernacular yeah so in high school um i played team sports uh, i played football in high school and uh i wasn't like grades wise like school wise i wasn't doing super well and i remember because uh you know um i guess like speaking english i do okay but like grammatically writing and all that stuff uh when it comes to the technicality of english i don't really do that well and so i remember i wasn't doing well in class um, you know, I think I was a sophomore, junior in, in, in high school. And, um, I remember my, my, one of my football coaches, Mr. Miller, Tim Miller, who's still teaching. Uh, and he, he, um, I was just having a rough day in practice. I remember, and I was just really stressed because I knew when my parents get my grade and they saw how I was, you know, you know, kind of low C's in uh, English that it was going to really like my father, and my mother were going to come down hard on me. And I remember I was having a, a really just crappy day of practice and I wasn't doing well and I was just very emotional. And I remember he pulled me aside and said, Hey man, like what's going on? Like uh, how, what, you know, like you're not like this, like what's going on? You're usually happy. You're usually, you know, you're, you're go lucky, you have fun and practice and what's going on. And I remember coach Miller said to me, he's like, and I just told him, I'm like, man, I'm, I'm not doing well in English and I don't know what to do. Like, you know, I, I'm just not, you know, I don't think I'm cut out for, you know, school and blah, blah, blah. And I remember Coach Miller goes, okay, here are my uh, study hall periods in my class. You know, he's like, so these are when I have my breaks. And I'm going to take the sports page out of the, news, uh, out of the newspaper, and I'm going to leave the sports page in my room, and you can get a hall pass from your, you know, from your study hall people, uh, you know, teacher or whatever, and you can come to my room, and you, we don't even have to talk. And all I'm going to do is give you the sports page, and you're going to just read. And what he said to me was, you just read, because I think that he's like, once you start reading uh, stories or, or reading things that, you know, that you enjoy reading, like at that time, you know, at sports. And once you start reading this, like uh, sent sentence structures, tense, you know, and, and when it comes to all these just technicalities of English uh, writing, like it's going to make sense. It's going to, you know, once you see it. And so I'm like, oh, okay. And for a whole year, that's what I did with him. And, you know, it, this was his, like, he gets one period a, a day for, for like, you know, it was like a four, 55 minute period, whatever, for his break. And he would sit in class and he would just let me come in and read the, you know, he'll, he'll have the sports page out and I'll read it. And we just talk. And for a whole year, that's what he did. And 
I was able to pass, you know, I, I did well, you know, decent. And I was able to pass uh, because of all that. I was able to go to college. And I mean, he just took the time. Like he didn't, he didn't look at me as some charity case. He didn't look at me as whatever. He just said, Hey, like here, here, I'm doing this. You just come in, you know? Um, and that affected me a lot. Like that really showed me what it meant to, 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 to care for someone but to go the extra distance and say, hey, like, I want to see you do well. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sacrifice my one break a day I get. I'm going to make sure that you have the opportunity, you know, to, to go uh, on from here. And, and yeah, I mean, I remember, uh, yeah, even he came up to, uh, to the restaurant and visited us uh, this past uh, fall. And I was able to tell him that. And I haven't seen him in like 15, 16 years. I was able to tell him that that was because of that, that really helped me give him that confidence so that I could do my college essay and get into college, you know? And so I just, the way that he did that really helped me. And, and that's kind of what I want to do, like, especially for younger cooks, because there's all these, all these younger cooks, they always have all these great dreams and aspiration, which is amazing. And I love that, but I want to teach them how to harness that because at that, at that age, when I was that young, I had the same thing, but I was all over the place, you know, I never committed to anything. It was always, I did something for a few weeks and then went to do something else. And I really take to talk to the younger guys. If you want to commit to this, you want to commit to this, give us six months to a year and we want to help mold you. And then after that, if you want to leave and go do something else, that's amazing. But we want to be able to give you the tools to go. Yeah. What do you, what do you think that um, you'd like to see us learn from this pandemic? Um, what do you, uh, what do you want us to, um, what do you aspire for whether it's, whether it's specifically your field regarding um, the production of food and, and, and it's, it's cultural component or whether it's a broader community, uh, what would you like to see us learn or, or change uh, when we're on the other side of this pandemic? Yeah. I mean, I've been thinking about this for, you know, the last few weeks. And I think the one thing is I think before the pandemic, a lot of us were on our devices. It was all about social media it was about you know looking like like it's kind of like this front door view of everyone's life you know you're not really seeing what's behind you know behind the social media account but there's a there's like this distance where everyone kept this distance and they all had this facade and what's very interesting is this pandemic has really stripped all that down and instead of seeing people's instagram account or facebook account we actually want to interact with people one-on-one we want to see humans. We don't want to see a screen. We want to be in front of each other. We want to be able to hug each other, to handshake each other, you know, just put our arms around each other. We want to empathize with each other. And if the one thing that I've learned from this pandemic is like all those things that didn't really matter before COVID, now for the last, you know, two months where we're, we're not allowed to do that, where we, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're being sheltered in place, we want to do that. And so as when we slowly come out of this pandemic and, you know, and things are getting back to normal, I think that we're going to appreciate that more. Just the gathering of eating together, just being around friends, being around family, being around the people you love and, and, and having that time around the table, talking, eating late tonight and not saying things that not saying these lines of I'm too busy for this. Let's reschedule for that. But just taking this time and said, hey, remember the time where we weren't busy and we were all just stuck in our homes. Now, you know, now we're able to do this. And I, so I, I guess I, for me, it's just that, that appreciation, especially like 
when it comes to like making food, it's like, man, one of the greatest joys that we get to do is we know that for people in the service industry, we get to facilitate, facilitate community. We get to, you know, like I believe that when people gather and eat together, that the most important thing on that, uh, on that table is not the food. It's the community that's happening. It's the relationships that's building. It's the commonality that we're, that we're finding that we have in each other. And I miss that. I miss, uh, you know, we're able to do that with the takeout food that we do. Sure. But, you know, but like to be able to have strangers sit around the table together, friends for the first time sit around the table together. I miss doing that. I miss being a part of that. And, uh, you know, our, even our even the guys that we cook, like we get excited about the new dishes that we have ideas for, you know. And so we we want to be able to, to, to see that happen again. And, and I'm excited for that day to come back. I'm, I'm not sure I could think of a, a better note for us to end our conversation on. It's been such an honor to spend this time with you. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of On Topic. To find out more about all of my guests this season, head to mcad.edu forward slash on topic, where you can find profiles and links of our guests and more information about this remarkable series.